first. I'm gonna have my fun. I'm Becky. I'm Jen. This is too close to home. Welcome. So, uh, if you stay with us this long, we're basically professionals now. <laughs> we're getting there. We're, we're upping our quality, but, uh, this story that I'm talking about today will be about Dean Coral. And what makes it super fun is that me and Becky went on a whole adventure. We did. It was fun. Jennifer only almost got me killed three times. Only almost. Only almost three. There was some bars on the window. Minimal gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> very, very minimal. So, Dean Coral was famous for killing 28 boys in Houston, Texas, between 1970 and 1973. So, uh, we went to the area that he would hunt at, which was the Heights in Houston. It was about six square miles. And then... FYI, it's not scary anymore. No. It's a bunch of rich white ladies running around in there. Lululemon. And pillow puff jackets and... There's, there's a, a Warby Parker yeah. store. <laughs> Historic nice houses being turned into Warby Parkers and stuff. For real. It was kind of sad, but also very cute. And we forgot to find a gluten-free bakery. Oh, yeah. Next Most. time... We're in the Heights. We're going to get a gluten. Because you know there was a gluten-free bakery. Oh, my there. God. There had, and it had to been good ones, too. Good. Like, legit shit. Oh, for real. <laughs> uh, so, then we also checked out where he stored his bodies, and that was in southwest Houston. This is where Jennifer told me, I feel like it's a safe area. We'll totally be able to get out and walk around. And we're pulling up, and I'm like, that house has bars on the window. That house has bars on the window. I'm not sure that this is... Get out and frolic around the street safe. Listen, they can afford bars. I just like the few brave ones Some without of the whole, it. Whole damn houses had bars with little spikes on the top of them around the house. Mine was like those gothic looking gates, like don't even try. Yes. You're I'm gonna like, fall and impale yourself. I'll tell you what, Jennifer, I'm gonna look from afar. <laughs> I'm gonna stay back here. Um, then we went to, and eventually, Dean Coral was killed, so we went to that house where he was killed, mm-hmm. took some wonderful selfies. We and did it, and that place was kind of... Spooky. Yeah. Like, you just got a weird feeling, you know, like, weird presence while you were there. It's almost like it has a mask. It's been redone, and it has nice cabinets and all that, but it doesn't take that eerie feeling away yeah. like, that you have when you're in there, and you're looking through the windows, and... I had, like, that feeling, like... When you're home by yourself and it's dark, it's late. Like, there's supposed to be people at your house, but they're not. So you constantly, like, kind of have this feeling like something's not right. And then you hear something, you're like, ooh. Like, that's how I felt standing in the backyard. Oh, yeah. Like, this, like, creepy feeling like I needed to constantly turn around with behind me. Oh. Oh. And it wasn't as scary. There wasn't bars on all the windows of the houses there. So I mean, it probably should have. That One of those windows was busted out, and they're like, this place is for sale. Yeah. The, the sale sign was, like, leaned up against the tree, like, okay. Jennifer may or may not have tried to find an unlocked window to go inside. <laughs> I would never. <laughs> so then after we left there, we went to go see where Dean Coral is buried, which is in Bethany Cemetery in Pasadena. He had way too nice of... Uh, a burial spot compared to what he did to these boys. Way too nice. But you know, I was thinking about it last night. It was probably so nice because he was probably buried before they knew everything that he did, correct? No. But I thought the little boys didn't come forward and say everything until later on. They said it pretty... The first one said it pretty, like, initial. And and that's the weird thing, is that his accomplices, which was Henley and Brooks, Henley was the one that killed him... And he was going to initially just leave him. 
And then the guy that he was with, who was also going to be a victim, said, no, 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 we need to call the police. So he calls the police. And instead of being like, oh, I killed this guy in self-defense, he decided he was going to tell them the whole oh, okay. kit and caboodle. And that's where it all started falling out. So so we have some pictures and we'll put on the oh yeah, the Facebook. The Facebook. The faces of books. <laughs> so just to see, to hear about this 28 murders... How can you do that? How can you, in one of the largest cities in the United States, have so many murders go undetected? Well, it's very simple. Let's talk about the history of Houston for a second here. It was a true frontier town in the sense that it was an old city vibe meeting with the rush of oil production that really made the town rich. And there, Oil still makes the town oh, rich. Oh, it still does. It's definitely different than any other city that I've ever lived in in the fact that the economy never gets hit here as hard as it does other places. Even in the like 2008 recession, they said they did almost had no problems because there's oil and it's a plenty. There's factories everywhere, so there's jobs to be had and things to do. When Houston was built, the leaders were told you could either build for volume of people or you could build for economic development, which they obviously chose the latter because that's the one that's going to make the money. There were more ACs per capita in Houston than the entire world, if that gives you any semblance of how much money people in Houston had in the 70s. There's a lot of people in Florida that probably didn't have air conditioning in the 70s. Thank God I didn't grow up then. Oh, right. There's a quote of it saying, they went from wilderness to bewilderness. That's one of my favorite, wilderness to bewilderness. Because it was just so overnight in how they grew and mm. soared in that way. The economic growth led a lot of folks coming into Houston, but the structure was and continues to struggle to support the masses. I was watching the news the other day, and they were talking about how there's not enough funds, there's a less amount of firefighters and police than we actually need to substantially take care of the city. And that's a problem that's never went away. And, and it's, it's only worse with this day and age, and the firefighters and police and everybody those civil service jobs with the public are hard enough as they are and now there's this such great divide with law enforcement that it's even worse now oh yeah so there was no zoning laws just about because zoning laws would have kind of inhibited some of these people from becoming rich so it was very weirdly built you'd have commercial warehouses next to beautiful homes there's and it's still kind of like that that some of those things have changed but it definitely was odd at the time and then you had places like the Fourth Ward, which to this day still struggles. And meanwhile, the Fourth Ward struggling in the 70s, they're building like the Astrodome and Astro World. <laughs> like, okay, I'm so sorry you guys are suffering, but can you see how pretty this is? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> in 1957, despite being filled with a wide array of cultures and happy people, it became Murder City as it had the highest rates per capita murder. So bigger oh, than the whole does. world just about. In 1966, there were five dozen more victims of murder than in all of London, which is six times larger in size and population. I mean, you're comparing it to London, though, and <laughs> let's just be real. America doesn't have a lot of sense. <laughs> like, it's what we, Kyle Kanani is like, it's really funny to be welling up with national pride, <laughs> but Americans do it right. Uh. <laughs> With the lack of focuses on municipal services, the Houston Police Department number 2200, which was less than half the required amount to actually patrol and take care of the city. It was permanently understaffed, and this is the most Texas thing. The police chief was like, 
we could get funds, but we don't take handouts. There were federal funds readily available so they could really improve the resources in Houston. They're like, ah, hard pass. (laughs) I don't want any of that federal money over here. And that sounds very Texan. Kind of like our freeze. We're like, we could winterize, but that would cost money. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't like the federal government telling me what to do. (laughs) Instead, um, just turn your air down to 64. Y'all will be fine. (laughs) You're good. So their detective department was only about 45 guys, and they had to investigate murders in 55 other classification of crimes, which were violent crimes, not greed. This seems like enough. Oh, yeah. Just just lightly enough. That seems fine. And that overwhelming caseload made people do what everybody does when they're overwhelmed and have faced like this impenetrable wall of crap to do. They're like, you know what I'm going to do? Ignore it. Uh, duh. <laughs> They'd even made a game out of it after a while where they, they would get a case and they would leave it on the evening detective's desk. Like, I ain't even touching this. I mean, sounds like a night shift problem. Right? Like, it was so bad that, like, a woman would get beat by her husband and they'd be like, well, we can't do anything about that, but if you want to, you can come down here, make a statement, and we'll send you a summons. That way he'll have to turn himself in. Yeah. So basically they had to do all their own work. Their missing people's department was literally, the only job they had was taking that report and then reporting back if the person showed up dead or in jail. They didn't actively search for them whatsoever. The only murders... I mean, in their defense, they didn't have enough people to do anything. True. True. And then a lot of those missing cases were, as often was seen in the 60s and 70s, all their runaways. Yeah. And one of the things that Dean did was he would force these kids to write postcards to the families while he had them, you know, mm-hmm. kidnapped and torturing. And so these families would get postcards from the kids saying, oh, I found a really good job over here in Austin. One of them said, like, I, I'm going to be loading and unloading trucks, going up to Washington. I'll be back in a couple of weeks to go back to school. And the families were like, first of all, he would never do that. That's not even how that works. Second of all, this isn't his handwriting. It looks like his signature, but this isn't his handwriting. So they'd go to the missing persons and be like, yo, this ain't right. And they'd be like, well, you heard from him. Well, like I said, it doesn't look like his handwriting. This doesn't look right. Well, (laughs) you heard from him, so we're just going to take him off that register, okay? I'd like to hope if that ever happened to me. If I was ever kidnapped and, like, strung up to a torture board and having all this shit done to me, and then they're like, oh, FYI, if you write this postcard, I'll let you go, that I'd be like, but will you fuck off <laughs> and just like refuse to write it because I'm sure he told them some kind of ploy to get them to write it but I feel like is there any part of you that thought to yourself let me not do this because all I'm doing is help you get away with whatever you're going to do to me because yeah. this is obviously not going to end well but these were young kids so I understand not but there are kids that are street smart that be like because mm, you've heard about them in murder yeah. cases where they fought back or they were clever enough yeah. to talk somebody out of something I'd have told them to fuck off I like to think I would have oh I wish I would hope I would, but then again, I guess. Well, I hope I never come in that situation. First. (laughs) Hopefully never get in that situation. Despite what I did the other day where I almost killed us when we went into those parts of Pasadena and we shouldn't have went to. Yes, we were almost in part of Planet. There are two types of murders where it was like the rich white people that were investigated and then you had misdemeanor murders, which was everybody else that didn't matter. Mm. So if you were from a different ethnic group, 
if you were poor, you were this, you were that. I don't have time. I mean, detectives would get a case and be like, you know what? I think I can give an hour to this. Shit. And then if they didn't solve it, it was going to remain done. Well, this isn't CSI, so you're not going to solve it in 45 minutes. Yeah. So. <laughs> right? Why not like 48, hour. okay? Yeah. <laughs> in Houston, the once and future city by George Berman, there's a popular limerick. In Houston, we feel no aversion when others are casting aspersions. We never mind the murders and such. We take them as weakened diversions. Oh. How very laissez-faire. What a very positive spin to put on it. <laughs> right? At the time, the worst criminal that the Heights had ever seen before Dean Coral, and this is my favorite part, is the Heights Phantom. Okay? And he would knock on the door, woman would answer the door, and he would show all his kits and boodles and all that, and be naked <laughs> as shit, and then he'd run away! And so when they finally did catch him, they brought him into a lineup, but none of the women could identify him from the waist up. Stop it. <laughs> so all these motherfuckers had to show their... No, they wouldn't. So the guy ended up getting away with it, pretty much. But because, did he kill anyone? No, he just flashed a bunch of women. That's the worst thing that had happened in the Heights. Okay. <laughs> I thought the Heights used to be rough, and then they classed it up. It was. So it was a slum of criminals, but it's where the criminals lived. So it's like, if you've ever seen it, like, gypsy encampments, where gypsies live, and I'm talking about, like, Romney that have lived over here, they're known for being criminals a lot of times, usually with asphalt crimes, which is odd, but whatever. A lot of those times, they will not burn somebody in their own neighborhood. Like, you don't shit where you eat kind of thing. So that's what the Heights was like. All the criminals live there. Everybody, as long as you kept your shit together and you didn't bother me, I'm not going to bother you. I'm not going to ask you no questions. You don't ask me no questions. So basically, it was like the perfect murdering ground for him. Enter Dean Coral. <laughs> Born December 24th, 1939 to Mary and Arnold, who eventually got divorced. He was a quiet, solidly built man, very sharp eyes. He had this really fucked up relationship with his mom, like some uh, Ed Gein. Like, you know how he was about his mother? It's very much like that, except he was the father in the relationship and she was the child. She got married five whole times while they were, she was alive. She got married to his dad, divorced, married to his dad again. Got married to a salesman. And then in the 70s, apparently, there was a very primitive form of dating where they would, you'd fill out these little cue cards and they stick in a computer and they'd match you to someone. <laughs> this is the best. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you about that husband in a bit. So uh, you tell me she was a player? <laughs> she's a psychotic player. <laughs> Even after he came out that he had done all this and there was absolute unrefutable proof, she was like, my son would never. Of course. Of course. All these people saying bad shit about her son like right? that. Rude. Duh. He was very solitary as a child. And all these statements are coming from his mom. We don't have much from his dad. And Dean Coral was killed, so we weren't getting anything from him. So everything we have is from people around him. She said that he was very solitary and quiet as a child, and that is because when he went to a party one time, everybody got presents but him. And that's why. That's why he murdered 28 boys. Because he didn't get a uh, Christmas present one time? Oh, it was from a party, so he didn't get his consolation prize or something. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Sounds she very 2022-ish. <laughs> Kids these days. <laughs> After she married and divorced and married and divorced his dad, she married a salesman and moved to Vidor, Texas. And have you ever heard of Vidor? Mm -mm. 
Bidor is a little town on the border of Louisiana, and it's called a sundown town. Do you know what those are? Mm -mm. A sundown town is a town full of white racist people, and they will literally have signs saying, Oh, don't, don't let the sun set on your ass. Yeah, we had one back home where I grew up, and but it said something quite a little bit more vulgar, but that was... There was more words added, but it was that exact same sentence. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, and it was not a nice town. Is the People talk about this town like this is the kind of town that, for fun, kids would didn't have anything else to do, so they would like light a firecracker on a cat's tail kind of towns. Like, oh, yeah. Just future serial killers all the way around. Pure garbage people. His favorite thing to do was hunting flying squirrels. And when I say hunt, I'm going to use that term very loosely. It's more like torture. He would end up killing these flying squirrels, tying them around his neck, or stuffing them in his boots. As is, I guess, a Texas way. And that's part of the McDonald triad, where you're abusing little animals. But, yeah. He... That was his hobby, man. He just killed it and wore it? Yeah. Okay. Very Viking okay. style. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if he skinned it and made a pelt or, you know, a oh, no. jacket or something. We're okay. talking like bull-ass, dead animal. Just Mr. T in it. You well, know what I mean? All right. All right. He will proud. do you, boo. The only other hobbies he had was uh, he loved to play trombone, which later on down the line, he didn't want anyone to mention it because that was the most embarrassing thing. That was the most embarrassing thing? The squirrel tie around your neck wasn't? Not at all. <laughs> okay. So, at the time, his mom would do a lot of, like, baking and cooking, and this traveling salesman came by who sold pecans, and he was like, so, okay. I know. I didn't know there was traveling salesmen for pecans, but apparently there is. Didn't either. He came by, and he was talking to Mary, and he was like, Mary. I got a bag of nuts you want to buy? No, right. <laughs> I bet she you she, like, oh, you know yes, she I fucked do. him. <laughs> you know she fucked him. But he was like, basically, Mary, since, and this is a quote, like, since you got all that energy... Why don't you start making candy and sell it? Like, all your stuff's really good. So she gets like, oh, hell yeah, I can. Takes the family, drives all the way over to Houston, and buys a recipe for pecan pralines. I was going to say, it had to be something with his pecans. Yeah, with pralines or pralines or however you want to say it. I call them pecans, so we're already different there. Yeah. <laughs> and so she paid $50 for that, came over, and started the Coral Candy Factory. I think when she got divorced from... I don't know how, like, why she named it Quirrell. I think it's, I think it's because she wanted, because he had a, a younger brother and a half sister, and I think because both of those boys were Quirrells, that's why she called a Quirrell Candy Factory because she had hopes to leave it to them. Mm -hmm. That worked out great. <laughs> he worked really hard on the business, and all he did was either make candy, kill flying squirrels, play trombone. He had no friends. He's very solitary. Most people say that he was very solitary. So. His grandparents lived in Indiana, and he ended up going back to Indiana after his grandfather died to help his grandmother out, and that's when he started hanging out solely with children. There was a pair of, like, neighbor girls down the street that he would make 8 millimeter films with that were innocent. Okay. Okay, I'm sure. Very innocent. How old was he? Grown? At that time, he was, like, 18, 19. Okay. After that, he got drafted into the Army as a radio technician, and he served at Fort Hood during Vietnam. Didn't see a single bit of action. And most serial killers who have served did not see any action. So that's pretty on the normal. This is a side... This one kills me. A fellow soldier stated later that this is when he had his first homosexual experience. 
I guess he became faggy. That's the only way I oh, can say it. Okay. That's exactly what the soldier said. He became faggy. That's the only way. There's so many ways you can say that besides that. But, well, at the time. But, like, for it to be a don't ask, don't tell kind of, like, nobody talked about that in the era and homosexuality was still very faux pas to come out to another soldier that you've had a homosexual experience, like... One of them that I've written about, we haven't done yet, uh, came out while he was in the service. And you, you could you could do it. You just couldn't admit to the military you did it. Yeah. That's the whole building. I said, you <laughs> fucking do it. He only spent a year in, and this is during Vietnam, so the war is going, and his mom files a hardship paper to have him brought home because she cannot run that candy factory without him. <laughs> it's so hard. All that candy, who's going to make all these pecan pralines? <laughs> While he was in the army and at Fort Hood, his mother, this is funny, buys a factory and makes it the Coral Candy Factory. You know what's across the street? An elementary school. And that's where the Candyman persona came. He would, all these kids would come across the street clamoring like, oh, I want some candy. So he would take the defective candies and give it to the kids. A lot of these kids that he was grooming ended up being his victims. Mm. He had known these children since they were, like, five, six years old. The principal at the elementary school was like, bro, I'm going to need you to stop giving these kids candy because it's dangerous. They're crossing this road to come to your factory. He's like, oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Is the candy factory still around? No. Uh, it's been destroyed since then, and now it's, like, rows of really nice houses. The oh, elementary told me that school, yesterday. The elementary school is still there. I wanted to go look, but I was like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I don't, it's not like anything died there, but, but still. Now that we're here at the candy factory, this is where stuff gets even weirder. He installed a pool table and a game room. In the candy factory? In the candy factory. Oh, so wow. That, he could that have, is like Chomo Central. Right? He was like, let me bring all this stuff out here. Come on, kids. Come yeah. on. Come on to my candy shop and play with the balls. And this was about the time that his co-workers noticed his lack of interest in women. And he would date women, but he would always show up to dates with a van full of kids. Because he just loves kids so I'm sorry. much. Did you say a van full of children? Oh, yeah. And you know he had a pedo van. It was a he white, up to pick up windowless a van woman. full of children. Okay. He even had a steady girlfriend for five years during all this. They never had sex, not one time. They attempted to, and he just wasn't feeling it. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I just keep imagining, like, JJ showing up to our first date with a van full of kids, and I'd be like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to have to say no. And despite, you know, homosexuality being a faux pas again, since he was such a nice guy, like, he would help anybody, everyone was like, you know what, he's homo, but I don't care. He's cool. I mean, he's a cool guy. Great which is very, him. very nice for the time, you know, not... Notwithstanding his child murders and stuff. But right, right. He did have a very bad temper that he kept in check, though. And this is like, he would get really angry, and he would go back into this one room in the candy factory. Ate him a whole bunch of candy. Ah! And apparently he would be going fuming. He'd go in there for hours, and then he'd come out and be happy. Nobody knows what he did in it, but they all called it the pounding room. The pounding room? Pouting. 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 Like pouting. <laughs> like pouty baby. <laughs> I need a pouting room, but I just want to go in there and have quiet. Oh my God. Not pout. 
I'll pretend I'm pounding. I'll be like, oh, I need to go pow. I'm so angry. Nobody knock on this door. <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> for real, for real. And listen to podcasts. He was and he very, like, to himself, like, despite how nice and kind and helpful he is, he would really keep to himself. And he was very clean cut and polite, and many people called him vanilla. Well, I would 100% believe the description of being vanilla is accurate. Oh, yeah. I mean, he had a pouting room. Uh, this is where some more fun stuff happens. And this is, like, where I wish they did not tear down that factory. He began his hobby of digging. And he would go back in the pouting room, and he dug all that floor up, and then he put pours down and put, like, concrete over the top, he said. I wonder if there's bodies there. Oh, there probably is. Why else would you tear up a floor, dig in it, and then replace the floor for, what, shits and giggles? Yeah. He also liked to dig at night at White Oak Bayou, and he said it was to bury spoiled pecans, which were invested with weevils and spoiled candy apples, which always brought bees, and apparently the only way you can get rid of them is to bury them in the ground. Mm. That's not a lie at all. Okay. And people just believe it. They're like, oh, he's just burying them weevil-filled pecans again. Well, it's like funny because you look back at a situation like this and you're like, how did we not notice? But people will do anything not to, like, include and, themselves in some shit like this. Well, and not to, like, see the truth. Yeah, like, you know what? But, Definitely not burying what's bodies. What's Dean doing out there? Don't look. He's just being burying pecans. <laughs> They're like, but that's... That, don't you... He's just... And apples. He's going to end up in the pouting room if you don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about they took don't ask, don't tell outside of the realm of what his intention was. <laughs> his digging started around the time of his mother's fourth and fifth marriage, which was to the same man. And so this she was, married the same man the first and second time and the fourth and fifth time? Yes. Okay. So she only had three husbands, but five marriages. Okay. And so this was the one who went through the, like, the program thing. It was a merchant seaman named Walt Colburn that she met on a computer dating service. He was extremely violent and schizophrenic who was suspected of killing his first wife. What did she put on that card (laughs) to say, hmm, wow, you need to marry this guy, a violent schizophrenic merchant seaman. I feel like this machine was just like, hey, yeah, write your dreams and hopes down on this card and stick it in it, and then they just <laughs> randomly give you somebody. They don't pay attention to what any of it says. <laughs> One time she was hiding How from does him. he fit a box that anybody right? shows? But whatever, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> One time she was hiding from him because he would beat the hell out of her, and she hid in the factory for six weeks straight. Once he discovered that she was at the factory, he sent her eight dozen flowers saying... Hold on. It took him six weeks to figure out that if she wasn't at home, she might be at work? He's schizophrenic. He had voices (laughs) to tend to. (laughs) I feel like if I couldn't find JJ and like two or three days pass, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to show up at his work during work hours because it's probably where he is. Could you imagine? She probably was hiding in the pound room. Like, no, that's just Dean's pound room. Nobody go in there. It's fine. It's fine. She's like, oh, shit, she's been at work this whole time. So he sent her eight dozen flowers once he discovered it. And on the card, it said, you'll have the most beautiful funeral if you don't come home soon. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. That's some shit that if you said to me, fuck around and find out, because now you about to have the most beautiful funeral. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, boom. Yeah. (laughs) As this happens, the Coral Candy Company starts financially suffering. So Shocking. Yeah. And he was unpaid. He went on and took a job at Houston Power and Lighting. Meanwhile, Mary, who loved psychics, went to a psychic and they were like, you know what? You need to move to Colorado. So, she... That was it? Just no... That's it. Okay. 
she decides to move to Colorado. And there's a lot of people who are like... Did she take her crazy husband with her? Uh, I think they got divorced. They were very close, her and Dean. So the fact that he didn't go, to me, signifies that he already had his hunting grounds kind of set up and he wasn't ready Girl, to Girl, he was already doing that when he was burying the apples. Yeah, so like, I don't think, I don't, that's why he, he didn't, didn't go. go. It wasn't because he didn't love his mother and didn't want to be he with her. He was already tearing up floors and burying shit, burying apples and pecans and everybody was like, it's cool, that's just Dean, that's what he does. So why would you leave? Because I'm sure he was burying bodies. I would bet a lot Oh yeah. It. Oh yeah. So I wouldn't leave either. I'm like, nobody suspects. They all believe that I'm burying Apple's story. <laughs> Listen, you can't keep bees away if you don't bury these bitches. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, apples, not children. <laughs> so when the factory officially closed, he went on full-time with Houston Power, and his mother had moved away, and he moved into a small shed across from Cooley Elementary School. A shed? Yeah. That's what I said. And that's how everybody described it, a shed. I'm like... It probably had a peephole out to the front of it. <laughs> elementary school, too. Oh, it gets good. So he decided he wanted to start throwing parties for these kids. So he bought stereos and black lights, which, you know, was the 70s. So everybody was into that. Games, things like that, to draw kids in. Like spiders to a web. Um, he even had an alarm that triggered whenever somebody came to his door. Of like, course. if he had it, like... He had a ring doorbell. He had the first ring doorbell. <laughs> well, I was thinking, like, the Michael Jackson ring doorbell. You know, remember that? <laughs> no, you didn't know that? <laughs> Michael Jackson, in his bedroom, he had a light that if somebody was coming down, I guess, the hallway or whatever towards his bedroom, it would go off. Mm, makes sense. No molesting was happening, I'm sure. No. Not at all. No. Uh, <laughs> between 1968 and 1970, there were no deaths, apparently, but that's when he picked up David Brooks, which is his first cohort. This one I feel so bad about, and I don't know why, because he's a murderer too, but he had a really tough childhood, and we'll get back to him in a minute. Month before the, the, ter- the trio terrorizes the Heights, Dean begins his murders solo. And his first reported victim being a UT student named Jeffrey Conan, who was picked up on September 25th, 1970. This is where they're like, I think he did this before. Most murderers, especially when it's child molesters, they go from being child molesters to murderers because they take it just too far. And then they are like, oh God, they're going to, I'm going to have to make sure that this kid doesn't talk again, kills the kid. Sometimes it's by accident, realizes it gives them a real hard on. And they're like, oh, shit, this is what I need to do. And it's very messy and not coordinated. And, you know, sometimes, most often than not, the bodies are found and, and everything. His weren't like that. They were bound, tied with cloth, naked. They were often wrapped in plastic wrap. And those are all things of premeditation and experience. The theories are that he also may have had more assistance than just Henley and Brooks. That he had these assistants before, but they were eventually murdered. And he had got new assistants. So, I think he started killing when he came home from the army. I think it probably ended up being a situation where he brought a kid to the candy factory, might have been in the pouting room, killed a kid on accident, had to bury him, and then just enjoyed it so much he just kept going. Because he had a really bad bloodlust. He was a sexual sadist. He got such pleasure from the pain that he would cause these kids. 
Just like Gacy, he did the same thing where he would fuck around with these kids and everything. And then he accidentally strangled one to death and he realized how much he enjoyed killing. So let's talk about the accomplices. We'll talk about David Brooks first. He's the one that doesn't, like, he didn't talk a lot. He was brought in by his dad once his dad found out that Dean had died because he knew that him and Dean were close. And his dad was like, all right, you're going to do everything you can to help out these police officers. And then he ended up kind of self-implicating. He idolized Dean. He thought he was, like, the best thing since sliced bread because Dean would give that kid undivided attention. And a lot of the kids in the Heights were from rough families, children of alcoholics or drug addicts, what have you. He would buy his silence. And one of the things, because, like, after he saw Dean kill for the first time, or molest for the first time, he bought him a 1969 green Corvette. It's a pretty nice gift. Yeah. He also was paid by Dean for oral sex. Not to give it, but to receive it. To let Dean blow him? And that was often his M.O. He loved to give kids money to do things to them, like oral sex or whatever. The opposite of Henley. He was very moody, very quiet. He had glasses. People made fun of him for that. Dean never made fun of him. They had a somewhat sexual relationship. I feel like it's mostly a, a Stockholm Syndrome thing. Yeah. You know, he was in love with this person who took care of him, which happens a lot of times with these young victims, especially when they're groomed as young as he was. He had met Dean from El- Holmes Elementary School, and he'd be one of those kids going and begging for candy. And so you have this real nice person, and they just keep inching it further, just keep passing that line just a little bit more and a little bit more until you're fucking burying bodies. Yeah. Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., which he hated being called Elmer. He likes being called Wang. I like just calling him Henley, but uh, he was a high school dropout as well, and he had severe acne. He was usually always drunk, even as, like, 14, 15. He'd be, he was known for, like, stumbling across the neighborhood, like, oh, there goes Henley. He's just shoot this again. That's our little pimple-faced drunk. <laughs> and he was, like, very magnanimous. He was very popular, knew a lot of kids. You know, he came from a shitty background himself. And he was originally supposed to be a victim. Mm. He was lured by David Brooks to be brought in as first, initially, a third sex partner. And then he was like, nah, 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 man. I just like to party. I ain't into that. He still kept coming around because he was getting alcohol for free. And drugs for free. And uh, and he would just supply all the stuff because huffing was really big back in, then, back in those days. He had a little bit of a, a minor criminal record, but nothing like a serial killer. Nothing in his history kind of denotes that. But when you hear him talk about his participation in that, it makes me wonder if he's not also a sexual sadist of some sort, or just a sadist in general, just a psychopath who has no feelings in these ways. He's He loved a party, and he was a long-time face in the Heights, so that made it really easy for him to pick up boys and make them yeah. trust him. And know the situations that they were in. And Initially, whenever Henley kind of happened upon that he was doing these things, and the same thing with David Brooks, the better excuse instead of, I'm raping and murdering these boys, he told both of them, oh, I'm a part of a national crime a sex trafficking ring for boys, and I just get paid, and all these boys still survive, and they get shipped off to California to run the fields. 
as as children do, you know, like whenever your dog goes to the farm to run the fields. Oh, you okay. know, that's what these boys were doing. Okay. Yeah. Nobody died. Okay. Then eventually, like it was like he would do these, like, okay, well, I guess I did rape and kill these kids too, you know. And he, at this point, you know, they had been accomplices, so. If they did walk back, I, I imagine they would be like, well, then I'm going to have to admit that I've been helping this whole time procure these boys. Because he would offer them $1,500, which is $10,000 in today's money. Wow. Or as little as $200, which is $1,500 in today's money. That's still a lot. And these kids were super destitute. Uh, Henley's dad had left or whatever, and was take his mom was taking care of him and his siblings and what have you, so... I mean, a poor-ass kid, you could say, I'll give you $10,000 if you fuck over this other kid. You're yeah. just selling him into sex trafficking. Don't worry. Was, was um, Dean getting all this money from his job as a light man? Some people say yeah, and then some people say it might have been something bigger. There's a conspiracy theory about okay. that. That one is, like, eventually after these bodies and everything was discovered, there was a sex trafficking ring discovered that was nationwide. And apparently there were some big cahoots in there that paid for all this. But that's not proven. Henley and Brooks never met any of the people from the sex trafficking ring. So it's not really substantiated. But it, it could be true. Cause it's it not was, a far-fetched idea. No, because there was proof. They found it he in 1970. He's getting this money. He's buying Corvette and giving this kid ten grand. Oh, yeah. And $1,500. Like, but he lives in a shed and is a light man. Like, well, you're getting this money from somewhere, bro. Oh, yeah. And the candy factory don't went out of business. And, you know, Brooks even, when he was confessing, he was like, I hate to say this, but some of these kids that died wouldn't have been up to no good anyways. Okay. That makes it all right, then. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool and a big deal, guys. They were pretty, they're pretty shitty anyways. <laughs> or probably would have been. This is when the murders of the trio starts, because they become real close to each other. Once they bring Henley in, they're like... The three amigos that you never want to meet. The murders of James Glass and Danny Yates were the first Brooks brought to Dean. They had hung out with Dean before and they were friends with Brooks, so everything seemed copacetic, right? Previously to this, Dean had purchased or uh, rented a storage shed, which is the one we went to, which, you know. Later, they found all the victims, and they found both James and Danny in this spot later on. Six weeks later, and this is a very short cool-down period, he had 15-year-old Donald and his younger 13-year-old brother, Jerry Waldrip. Oh, brothers? Yeah, and that wasn't the first time. Like they, they, He killed another set of brothers at separate instances. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine? Oof. A few months later, Brooks convinced 15-year-old Randall Harvey to take a ride with Dean in his windowless Econoline van. Ah, the first Chumbo van. And so, eventually in this van, they found binoculars, a two-way radio, 15-foot nylon rope, which he got from his job as a Houston light man. He brought the boys back to the apartment where he raped and tortured and murdered them. And that's where that board comes into play. He had a huge board, just a piece of plywood, and it had four holes on it. And the top holes would have handcuffs and the bottom were the nylon straps. And he would get these boys high, drunk, and they'd pass out. He'd tie them to the board and then he would torture them for days. The third set of murder in six months was another double and it was David Hillegeist and his neighbor Gregory Winkle in 1971. 
these are particularly, I mean, I'm, they're all sad stories, but the Hilly guys really worked hard to find those kids. Some of these kids that were murdered, their families never even reported them missing. Oh, that's But, funny. yeah, the Hilly guys family, they were very concerned. They even hired a private detective, which that private detective didn't find anything other than one lead of a guy named Chicken Joe that never panned out. Stop. Yes. <laughs> I think Chicken Joe got him. <laughs> How Houston. Uh, they talk to this detective and he gives them this lead. So they're like, okay, let's go see Houston PD. Give them what we know. Well, they get up there and they're like, hold up. You, you hired a private detective? And instead of listening to anything about the private detective found, they opened a case into seeing if the private detective had his proper credentials. Because they had so much staff and plenty of time to do that, right? Oh, yeah. Because how dare you? <laughs> so rude. There's um, not enough of us to do our job. We damn sure don't need anybody else out there trying to do The book that I use as my reference really goes into, and it's called A Man with Candy uh, by Jack Olson. And he really goes into what the Hillegeist family went through, and it's heartbreaking. Like, when they realized he was gone, over a couple of days they would stay up in shifts waiting for somebody to call. And eventually they opened a second phone line and said, everybody call this phone line because I don't want to miss David's call if he calls us. And they consulted psychics, they uh, listened to every lead that came by, and they had tons. Like, they went broke this family and they were already broke just yeah. trying to find their child this is a sad part because like their younger son started hanging out with coral this time the mom went to go see coral because this is around the candy factory time i think no it was when he was li living in his shed and she goes i just don't want him bothering you i'm sure you're a busy man and he's like no no it's great in fact don't worry about it you know i have uh i worked with so-and-so down at the candy factory and her son well, that son was Gregory Winkle, who was also killed. Brooks and Hindley would ply the victims until they were well lit, tricked them into handcuffs, like the Gacy trick where he'd be like, but you can't get out of these. They'd put the cuffs on and that'd be it. And then they'd lead them to Dean and they would say, they, well, I never watched him. Because they'd go back and forth like, oh, I didn't see him kill him. But he, they did. Many a times. And I'm then, sure they probably participated in a lot of it too. And <laughs> Probably the sexual stuff they just don't want to admit to. Oh, yeah. And then, like, so he said that he would pay them $200 a kid. And then Henley retracted that later saying, oh, he only paid me once or he didn't pay me at all, even though he said he would. Henley would go back and forth on his story a lot. This is another sad one. Frank Aguirre, he was another victim Henley brought in. He worked at Long John Silver's, and he was a long friend of Henley's. A long-time friend of Henley's. And this is where Henley supposedly had second thoughts. And he, Coral admits that he had been killing these boys the whole time in the middle of this he decided i'm not going to go to the police because i love this attention i love the love that i'm getting and he just stayed helping them just like brooks nowhere did these boys at any time stop but go it's kind of fucked up maybe i should report it right they were so deprived of love and, and attention, attention and money they were willing to seek it from the worst places so he was very quiet and he kept to himself, right? And they would host these parties. He would be sitting in the corner and he would only be like whispering to Henley and Brooks, be like, like very cryptedly and be like pointing at kids and stuff. Not suspicious at all. Meanwhile, these kids are having a party. Nobody really talked to them. They just were excited that they were getting free alcohol and free drugs and that they had a place that was safe 
for them safe being, you know, the operative word here. Right. But it did come down to the point where Henley's closest friends were never invited. And they were asked about it afterwards. Well, we just, we had our own places to party. Wasn't that big of a deal, you know. Sorry, it, that's how you know they're not girls. If my BFF had a party like a rager without me and then I found out about it afterwards, I'd be like, what? Right. Bitch, you didn't even invite me? Right. I do a perfect keg stand, okay? <laughs> at this point, kids start missing in mass, but they're also being flagged as runaways at the same time. So nobody's really doing anything about it. And every death is one of two ways, sometimes both. He either strangled them or shot them with a 22 caliber pistol. Sometimes he did both. And then he used different things for torture. And this is where it gets really gross. Just FYI, you might want to skip ahead if you don't like it. If you're not into this kind of squeamish stuff. He used different types of items for torture, such as an 18-inch double-headed dildo. And then he would take glass rods that he stole from Houston Power and Light, insert them into the boy's urethra, and break it off. Yeah, I remember that. Hear about that. He would pull out hair with pliers and his teeth. He even chewed the, the genitals off a boy that made him particularly angry. And when they looked back at the body, it was like you could tell it was just one bite and rip. Oh my. <laughs> that's the only way, that's the only thing you can say. Like, oh my. Yeah. Clutch my pearls. Yeah. And in the midst of this, he'd be blasting the radio to drown out their screams. Could you imagine what 1970s music would be playing while you were dying? Please, some Casey in the Sunshine Band. <laughs> so, no one expected the volume because he moved a lot. Like, five to six times a year. Different residences all around the Heights. And the neighbors would note little things, but they would be things that, I mean, might not be weird. One of the instances... Okay, this is weird, though. <laughs> this is weird. He... <laughs> Henley Brooks and Dean were out in the parking lot with a yellow boa constrictor. And they were, like, dancing around, like, <laughs> snake lady style, taking turns kissing it. Is that where Britney Spears got her... I'm a slave. Was she really ripping them off for <laughs> Dean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's dark. <laughs> One neighbor heard a whole bunch of screaming and banging one night for, like... Someone yelling, get him to stop, stop him, you know, whatever. And then the noises stopped. And then a couple days later, the apartment was abandoned. And then another neighbor saw him, you know, with his binoculars out on the porch, watching little children, because that's not odd at all. But, you know, those I've got binoculars at my fucking front door, so I can't <laughs> say anything about that. <laughs> those incidences isolated in one neighborhood may be like, the neighbor's just weird. And they weren't all in the same place. We so. all have neighbors that were like... That's the weird one. Dude, we have a neighbor, and they fight all the time. And I go out there and sit on the porch and smoke while they fight so I can listen to it. And one time I thought I was going to have to call the police on them. And then most of the time they're fine. (laughs) (laughs) So you just never know. All that to say, he ends up at 2020 Lamar Street. And that's where we're going to pick back up on our next episode. Part two where he gets, and this is a surprising part, real dark. (laughs) this was just a little dark (laughs) this was just like that preemptive dark now we're gonna get real fucked up (laughs) well i'm excited because you've done very good so far i've learned a lot that i'm not sure that i ever wanted to know oh i've had dreams like i told you i had dreams last night about finding bodies 
I'm like, okay, I'm going to add this to my podcast. Well, you know, researching it, then us going to all the places, and then knowing you're going to read it kind of really puts it all to turn into a dream. <laughs> you oh, made yeah. 2D words into 3D with going and visiting. I do want to, before we log off, I didn't list my sauces, as I like to say, <laughs> at the beginning of it, but I will go ahead and list them now. Then we have to worry about it next week. The Man with Candy by Jack Olson, which is a really good true crime book. It goes into a lot of grisly details and it has a lot of good quotes from the detectives and everything that's going on this time. That's the cool thing about something being so sensational and it being a well-known case is that there is so much footage of things. And I've got uh, some recordings and pictures for you to look at next week that are going to be so disgusting. <laughs> Yay! The last podcast on the left did a four-episode arc on that one, and it was well done. They also referenced The Man with Candy, and they also did a couple other, like Skip Hollingsworth, who works for the Texas Monthly and everything like that, but they really did a good job condensing all that. ABC 13 News gave me some sources. The Houston Chronicle, of course. Wikipedia, my favorite. <laughs> I've got some YouTube references and Reddit. Oh. Which is crazy because I got a lot of weird photos that are not on Google that are on Reddit. <laughs> which shows you that shit is dark. Oh, <laughs> it is. I can't wait to tell you the end of this saga, but you guys are just going to wait and come back and see us. Yep. Until then. Stay safe. Keep your head on a swivel. And don't bring it too close to home. Bye. Bye. If you like listening to us, you can find us on Facebook at Too Close Pod or under the Instagram handle Too Close Podcast. Also, if you have any stories of your own Too Close to Home experiences, shoot us an email at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.